I'm delighted, honored really, to be a part of this series, to be able to share with you today, uh, as Pastor Tim mentioned, the whole area of generosity, encouraging believers, followers of Christ, encouraging churches in this area of generosity is a, a passion of mine for at least you know, in the last 20 some years. Um, I believe generosity is the new evangelism. When we share what God has entrusted to us to advance his kingdom and to honor him, it is an attractive lifestyle for those who have yet to find Christ. You see, we get a myriad of messages about money all the way from financial professionals to commercial advertisers to our Facebook friends. But what does God have to say about money? We may be surprised just how much the Bible has to say about money. One such passage is a parable that we're going to look at today. We're within the context of finishing up our series on Luke. These four weeks on money fall within that. Jesus has in this passage, just finished his encounter with Zacchaeus. Pastor Matthew shared with us on that last week. And and Zacchaeus, after his encounter with Jesus, made the decision he'd give up half of his possessions, and if he had cheated anybody, he'd repay them four times. And Jesus makes the declaration, salvation, today salvation has entered this house. Boy, you know salvation has come when it affects the checkbook. Jesus' disciples, his followers now, are quite excited about this trip to Jerusalem. They think, in their mind, this is the time when Jesus is going to set up his kingdom, set up that earthly kingdom, liberate them from the bondage of the Roman conquest, and they would be part of that introduction of the new kingdom. But Jesus, he has other things in mind. And he tells us, he says, This parable is told because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. The other thing to keep in mind here is Jesus only has a few days left to live. If you you knew you only had a few days to live, what would be the messages that you would share with people? They would be important messages. So we need to listen to to this in the context of that as well. Now, Nearly half of Jesus' parables address this topic of stewardship. From story to story, the stewardship parables carry consistent themes. A master is going away. He entrusts his possessions to stewards, often knowing that he will be away for a long time. Then the master returns. The master always returns. And upon the master's return, those left with his resources are called to give an account. And the master rewards those who have been faithful and takes away from those who have not. And those who are expecting his return and living for his return are always rewarded. So let's keep this in mind as we read our text today. Luke chapter 19, we begin at verse 11. And while they were listening to this, in other words, the the account of Zacchaeus. 
he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. And he said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas, one each. And just for our understanding, a mina was a, a, a currency that they had it in, in those days that theologians or historians figure was equal to about 90 or 100 days worth of salary. So if we put that into today's context and we took the average Canadian salary today, this mina would be worth about $15,000. So he called his 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of 10 cities. And the second came and said, sir, your mina has earned five more. And his master answered, you take charge of five cities. And then another servant came and said, sir, here's your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. And his master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in, reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I come back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they said, he already has 10. And he replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, then even what he has will be taken away. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus' audience would have related quite well to this parable because they had just lived through an event in their lives where Archelaus, the son of Herod the Great, had gone to Rome seeking to be named by Caesar as king over Judea. But a delegation of Jewish leaders had also gone to Rome and pleaded with Caesar Augustus not to let that happen. And Archelaus did come back, but not as king, just as governor. This whole area of stewardship has fallen on hard times of late. Uh, It's interesting that within the secular context, uh, people are not afraid really to talk about stewardship, but they they use different terms. They'll talk about the environment. They'll talk about charity, getting in physical shape, time management, money management, all used for the term stewardship. Even in the church, we don't understand the word stewardship sometimes like we should. Sometimes stewardship is just relegated to a capital campaign. Church is a big project going on, so they need money, so we have a stewardship campaign. 
I'm so delighted that NLCC is in such a position that when we're talking about money here over the next four weeks, it's got nothing to do with being in financial straits. It's got nothing to do with raising money for a big context. It has entirely and strictly to do with raising apprentices of Jesus, faithful followers. What we share over these four weeks, in the words of Andy Stanley, is what we want for you, not from you. Stewardship is so much more than simply just good money management. And I hope that will come through as we talk about today. So in this parable, you have two main characters. You have the master, the landowner, and you have the servants. Jesus places himself in the parable as the master. His followers are the servants. And if there's one foundational key point that is absolutely necessary for understanding biblical stewardship, it's this. God is the owner of everything. Everything I have comes from God. Everything I have belongs to God. Everything is to be used for God, for his honor, for his glory, and for the purposes of his kingdom. That's why we have stewardship. If you've ever wondered or asked yourself the question, why do I have money? And we all do. Some maybe not as much as what we would like, but we all have money. We all encounter it on a day-to-day basis. And the key to understanding the management and the use of those funds is to understand that God is the owner. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. We are not God. He is. He is the creator. By virtue of him being the creator God, he is the owner of all that we have. John Wesley states that when the possessor of heaven and earth brought you into being and placed you in this world, he placed you here not as a proprietor, but as a steward. None of what we have is our own. And I say that and some of you, well, just a minute, Ron. I've worked hard. I've been diligent. I've carried on a job for years. I've set things away in savings. I've paid off a mortgage. I've, and we say, don't I get some credit here? It's interesting. When the children of Israel were going into the promised land, Moses encountered the same thinking. And he says, when your crops flourish and when your herds increase, don't forget about God. And in Deuteronomy, he says, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. Even the ability to create wealth is a gift from God. And for those of us who are followers of Christ, we don't even own ourselves. Paul told the Corinthians, he says, you are not your own. You are bought at a price. Christ paid a a price for us for our salvation and we belong to him doubly as he is our creator and as he is our savior. 
we give our lives to Christ, we make him our Savior and our Lord. And that's what baptism symbolizes. When the pastor takes and says, go under the water, everything that goes under the water belongs to God. And some of us will take one hand and hold it high in the air, keeping control. See, we're not here on our own business. We are managers of the possessions and the affairs of another person, a king who owns everything. Stewardship, yes, is managing well, but it's with a purpose. We are here on his business. Sometimes we get really upset, maybe even angry, when we lose what we think we own. An elderly lady was determined that she would be prepared if someday her life was ever threatened. One day she was out shopping. She was returning her car to her car with her bags. She saw four men getting into her car. She immediately dropped her shopping bags, drew the little handgun out of the purse that she had and says, I have a gun and I'm not afraid to use it. Get out of that car. Well, the four men totally startled, scrambled out of the car and took off like crazy. The poor woman, somewhat shaken, loaded her bags into the car and couldn't get it started. The key wouldn't even work. It wasn't her car. Her car, looking exactly like that, was four stalls down. Well, she did what she had to do. She loaded her bags into her own car and drove to the police station to turn herself in. Well, the desk sergeant, when he heard her story, nearly fell off his chair laughing. Pointed down to the other end of the counter where four men were reporting a carjacking by an old woman with curly white hair, less than five feet tall, with thick glasses, and carrying this large handgun. You see, she thought it was her car, but it really belonged to someone else. Sometimes we get all worked up trying to keep and defend what we think is ours. One day, a rider came galloping up to John Wesley said, Mr. Wesley, I'm sorry, but there's been a fire and your house is burnt down. Wesley thought for a moment and replied, no, my house hasn't burned down. God's house is burned down. I just have one less responsibility. That's not just a pious response. That comes from a heart that understands that God is the owner of everything. See, people ruin their lives over financial rights, inheritance squabbles, suing people they think cheated them. But God's calling us to think different, to think as stewards, to faithfully manage what he has given us. Scott Rodin, who is a prominent leader in teaching on steward leadership, kind of a mentor for me in some of his writings, he states the following. The enemy works to coax us to place some level of dependence on anything other than the love and grace of Christ. Our possessions, our retirement plans, our income, our assets, our accomplishments. He wants us to put our trust in a job, in a stock portfolio, in a paid off mortgage, or a future inheritance. But when we play the owner, notice that, when we play the owner of our assets, we shift our dependence onto something other than God. So God's the owner, what are we? We are stewards. 
And stewards think differently than those who think they're owners. Fully surrendered to their owner, the steward thinks only of what the owner wants. The vocabulary is different. It's, about, it's less about me and my and mine. It's more about him and his. We make statements like, not worrying about how much of my money I should give to God, but how much of God's money should I keep for myself? We ask questions, how does God want me to use his house? How does he want me to use his car? How does this next purchase honor God? How does this next purchase advance the kingdom of God? The point is that stewards think differently than those who think as owners. Let me share with you five different ways. First of all, stewards are grateful. Owners, or those who think they're owners, feel entitled. See, every day is a gift. Every moment is a gift. Every breath is a gift. And I'm grateful for what I have. I don't complain about what I don't have. Paul says to the Thessalonians, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Stewards are grateful. Secondly, stewards are content, whereas owners never have enough. If I believe that what I have is a gift from God, I can be happy and content with it. I I don't resent or envy what others have. And I don't belittle what I have. It's a gift from God. And this doesn't just apply to our money. A number of years ago, I was given the opportunity to take a new avenue of ministry. And I was very hesitant to do so. I knew what this would ask me to do. It would, it would require more time away from my family. I'd be on the road quite a bit. And you see, when I was five years old, my parents divorced. My father was never there for my baseball game, never there for our school plays, never there for our Christmas productions. My parents left us with an aunt and uncle. And so when God asked me to take on this new responsibility and I knew what it would do, I avoided it. But God presses us sometimes. And so he continued to ask me, he said, give it consideration. I said, no, there's lots of other people who can do it better than I can. Uh, There are lots of other people who, who would prefer it. I'm content with where I'm at. And God says, you don't trust me with your kids, do you? I said, what do you mean? He said, you don't trust me with your kids. And I didn't realize that unconsciously I had made a vow that I would never let my kids experience what I experienced in my childhood, even to the point of me now possessing those children. To make a long story short, we came to a church service where my wife and I on the front row got on our knees and with our eyes weeping tears, saying, Lord, if this is what you want, we accept it. As it turned out, I didn't end up even getting the position. But see, God wasn't after me or the position. He was after my heart. We don't own anything. He does. We are 
stewards. We are called to manage it. And it doesn't matter whether we have little or much. Paul, in speaking to the Philippians, they had sent him a gift and he was saying thanks for it. And he said, not that I was in need of it. And then he told us a secret. Philippians 4, 12 and 13, he says, I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living or in plenty, in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. How many have seen that last verse on plaques, on posters, on cards, on people's walls? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Did you realize that that verse was in the context of money? Paul says, whether I'm in plenty or whether I'm in need, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Like how many times have you seen that verse inscribed on the back of your credit card? How many times have you seen that verse pop up when you open your Apple Pay? I know what it means to be live in need. I know what it is to live in abundance. I've learned the secret. And what's the secret? In Christ Jesus, who gives me strength. See, if it's in our circumstances, whenever those circumstances change, then our contentment goes. The Apostle Paul highlights here how we can achieve true contentment and everlasting peace. The secret to the peace that Christ offers us is rooted in our trust in God, not in our circumstances. Whether in the times of abundance or in seasons where the budget's tight, we can rest easy knowing that God is our ultimate provider. Our peace comes as a fruit of the Spirit, not as a fruit of circumstance. And contentedness also means that I can have peace with whom God has made me to be. Our society suffers from crises of identity because they have not learned that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I am content with whom he has made me to be. Contentedness is total submission to God and to God's plan. Uh, Andrea Kapuyan, who serves on the board of, Cent- of the Center for Steward Leadership Studies, she says, it's profound that God daily challenges us with this struggle between contentment and deprivation, need and greed. This isn't a mountain he wants us to conquer. It's a constant exercise and regular practice. And that is comforting. My continual surrender to God's transforming work is essential if I wish to be a good steward. By his guidance, I learn how my demands and my discontentment contaminate and enslave me and others. And by his power, I can experience something new. I can become more of who he created me to be. I can find an everlasting provision that gives me more than enough. That is why I am excited about this series of four messages, that we would all know the freedom and the joy that comes from giving the owner control. So thirdly, stewards are generous. Owners are tight-fisted. We can only be generous givers when we truly believe that God is the owner and we are stewards. So how does a steward determine his giving? 
Well, suppose I was the bookkeeper at a large corporation. I was in charge of payables. The boss comes to me and says, write a check for $10,000 to cover the hydro for this month. I write the check without a second thought. Then he says, I want you to write five more checks of 3,000 each to cover payroll. I write the checks. Don't even think about it. It's the boss's money. I'll get my paycheck. I don't have to worry about that. I don't need to worry if there's money to cover those checks. It's the boss's money. He'll worry about that. This is similar to the attitude that we should have when God asks us to give. It's his money. If he says, I want you to give 10%, I do it. It's his money. If he asks me to give 23 and a third percent like he did in the Old Testament, I do it. It's his money. If he asks me to give more than that, I do it. It's his money. My responsibility in giving is to ask God what he wants me to give out of what he has entrusted me to. And then to be faithful and obedient to it. He determines my inflow and he determines my outflow. That's what it means to be a steward. Well, Ron, how much should a good Christian give? Well, I've seen lots of responses to that answer, but I think one is the, or the best is the quote from C.S. Lewis out of Mere Christianity. He says, I do not believe that one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxury, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. Stewards are generous. Fourthly, stewards are aggressive kingdom builders. Those who live like owners are only concerned with their own kingdom. They live in a two-kingdom world. Remember how we talked about society substituting words like environment, charity, getting in shape, time and money management for the word stewardship. You notice that on all of those words, the sense is preserving. You want to preserve the environment. You want to preserve health. You want to preserve your money. You want to preserve in all of those areas. On the kingdom, in God's kingdom, the steward thinks in terms of getting and giving and multiplying, aggressively increasing what God has given us for kingdom purposes. When the master gave each of those servants their mina, they were instructed to put this money to work. Here's our Greek lesson. The word pragmatuame, to conduct or to be engaged in a business, in, in verse 13. And then later in verse 15, diapragmatuame, to gain by trading, to earn. These two words are unique to Luke in the New Testament, and they emphasize how stewards are to make their resources grow, to all for the purpose of advancing God's kingdom. The expectation was, that when it came time to give account for what had been entrusted to them, they would return more than what had been given to them. So stewards are aggressive kingdom builders. And finally, stewards have one job. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. We have one job. 
so simple, so clear, so freeing, so joyful. Just one job, to be faithful. Don't have to worry about how much. Don't worry, have to worry about how little. Don't have to worry about where the next dollar is coming from. Don't have to worry about the results, the outcomes. All we have to do is be faithful. Randy Alcorn in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, and if you ever want to do a deep dive into this whole outer area of stewardship and finances and relationship to Christ, this is a great book. He says, as stewards, we manage assets for the owner's benefit, and we carry no sense of entitlement to the assets we manage. It's our job to find out what the owner wants done with his assets, then carry out his will. If we focus on the master's rights, we will fulfill our responsibilities. But the moment we begin to focus on what we think we deserve, on what we think our master or others owe us, we lose perspective. And the quality of our service or stewardship deteriorates rapidly. Our job is to find out what the owner wants. What this means is that we need to have a close, intimate relationship with the owner. I need to know what the owner's thinking. If I'm going to act on behalf of the owner, if I'm going to expend these resources in a way that he would expend them, I need to know what he's thinking. I need to know where his heart's at. What's important to him? What are the things that he wants to see accomplished? That's the only way I can do his will if I know his heart. So to know the heart of the owner, I have to be close to him. I have to spend time in prayer. I have to spend time reading the scriptures, learning from the Bible what he would have me do. I have to spend time with other believers, studying the Bible, life groups, going to church, things like that, that will draw me closer to the owner so I can know his heart. That is the only way I can be a faithful steward, if I know what he wants. But what would keep us from being a faithful steward? What would hinder us in our one job? The first two servants received commendation from the master. It was the third one that didn't. And he actually tells us what kept him from being a faithful steward. Verse 21, he says, I was afraid of you. See, in this parable, fear is presented as the opposite of faithful and shown as an absence of trust. He didn't trust the master. He doubted the character of the master, which was crazy because you could see in his treatment of the first two servants what his real character was. Now, we may never actually say we're afraid of God. In fact, we would probably declare we love him. But by our thoughts and our actions, sometimes we show that we don't really trust him. In fact, this servant was called wicked. He didn't abuse the funds that were entrusted to him. He didn't misuse them. He didn't fraudulently use them. He buried them. He didn't use them. 
He didn't use them for the kingdom's purpose and for the king's honor. He was told to put them to work and he didn't do it. And for that, he's called wicked. And if you look at a parallel passage in Matthew 25, a similar, although different, story is told in the parable of the talents. It's called a wicked and lazy servant. You see, the underlying issue in all of our stewardship, according to the scriptures, is trust. God challenges his people simply with, do you trust me? And he makes this question intensely practical by making the test a physical one involving our money. See, God promises to meet all our needs. He said to the Philippians, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. And he presses the point when he talks to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 9.8, he said God wants to meet our needs and not only does he meet our needs, so that he does it so that we'll be in a position to be generous. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Fear drives so many of our financial decisions. And it shows up in a couple of ways. First, there's the fear of not having enough. I'm afraid I won't have enough to eat tomorrow. I'm afraid I won't have enough for my children. I won't have enough for my retirement. I won't have enough, and it goes on and on. And so because of that fear, we hang on to what we've got, desperately holding on to it, because that's all we could, oh, that's all we can see is what we have today, and we're afraid and we hang on. Some of us even to the point of hoarding. Others, their fear expresses itself in being afraid of missing out. Of being afraid of not appearing successful. Afraid of not appearing like we've got it all together. So we want the latest car in our driveway. We want to live in the best neighborhood. We want to have the best house. We want to wear the best clothes, the latest fashions. Because we're afraid that people won't like us if we don't appear to be successful. And so we end up spending rather than the opposite of hoarding. And so we spend money we don't have to buy things we don't need to impress people who don't even like us. Fear. But we can demonstrate our trust in him and we can battle that fear by letting go, by releasing control to him. And we do that by being generous. Do we trust him enough to give what he has entrusted to us? Earlier in our study of Luke, we saw Luke 6.38. It says, given, it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over will be poured into your lap. For the measure you use, it will be measured to you. God's message is this, trust me, I'll take care of you. And though we don't physically see Jesus here, we know that he's with us, he's generous to us, he entrusts us with gifts, with wealth, with opportunities, with a gospel to share, and he says, fear not, I am with you, always. So money actually becomes a test of our allegiance. 
Again, earlier in Luke chapter 16, we read, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will, be hate, he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Man, I have been amazed at this verse. Of all the comparisons Jesus could have made, he makes this one. He could have said, you cannot serve God and the devil, and we'd have understood because the devil is a natural adversary to what God wants to do in this world. He could have said, you cannot serve God in self because sometimes ourselves gets in the way of what God wants to do. But of all the comparisons he could have made, he says, you cannot serve God and money. It was like he knew that money had that potential to be the other God in our life. And all the worship, the energy, the time, and the effort given to money would be stolen from God. God clearly intends this to be an either or, not a both and. You can't just add God to money. Every money decision declares our allegiance to God or to money. It's because our giving is a reflection of our heart condition. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. You decide what's a treasure and your heart follows after. If you want to have a heart for something, you put your money into it. I always say people have enough time and money for the things that are important to them. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to make money decisions out of fear. We can trust God. Let me talk about one more thing that doesn't often get talked about when you talk about stewardship. God rewards good stewardship. We live as stewards out of our relationship with God, out of our closeness to him, out of our trust in him, and at the risk of sounding like a knife salesman on the shopping channel, but wait, there's more. There are rewards for good stewardship. The master replied to that first servant, he says, well done, my good servant, because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of 10 cities. You know, it's funny how we can trust God with our eternal salvation, but we have trouble trusting him with that paltry paycheck we get every couple of weeks. When speaking about rewards, let me be clear. I'm not teaching a prosperity gospel. You know, the blab it and grab it, name it and claim it, increase my personal wealth. In fact, Probably any increase we get should first be considered as an opportunity to increase our generosity for the kingdom, not our personal lifestyle. Nor are we teaching that our earthly wealth is a sign of greater spirituality. How much we have is no indication of where I'm at spiritually. But how we manage what we have is an indication of our relationship with Jesus. The wealth we are given on this earth is to be enjoyed as a gift from God and to be shared with others. So when the owner speaks of being trustworthy in a very small matter, he's stating how small the earthly responsibility was compared to the eternal responsibility that the servant ended up receiving. For faithfully managing one mina, which represents our earthly possessions, he was placed in charge of 10 cities the second one in charge of five cities. And beyond that, I believe he's talking about the short time period of that responsibility in comparison to the eternal responsibilities. Let me illustrate. What if I offered you 
$10,000 to spend today. Or I offered you $10 million in a year's time and for every year after that. Well, you'd be foolish to take the 10000 For the steward who is faithful in what has been entrusted to him, the reward is far greater in comparison. So what's Jesus teaching us here? He's teaching the surprising truth that God uses our financial stewardship to determine how much he can trust us with spiritual matters, with eternal matters. Randy Elkhorn again says, what you do with your resources in this life is your autobiography. The book you have written with the pen of faith and the ink of works will go into eternity unedited to be seen and read as is by the angels, the redeemed, and by God himself. When we view today in light of the long tomorrow, the little choices become tremendously important. Whether I read my Bible today, pray, go to church, share my faith, and give my money, actions graciously empowered, not by my flesh, but by his spirit, is of eternal consequence, not only for the souls of others, but for mine. God is looking for people he can trust with spiritual riches, for people he can trust as rulers in his coming kingdom. And stewardship starts that test early and lasts throughout our life. Children are tested when they get an allowance. Teens with a part-time job are tested. Our management of money continues through our working life and even on in through our retirement. God is looking for people he can trust with real eternal things and he uses our management of the entrusted money and possessions in that evaluation. So every financial decision is a spiritual decision. Stewardship means whole different way of thinking. The person who serves faithful will be rewarded. And lest I be accused of a pie-in-the-sky religion, let let me remind you of what Timothy was taught by Paul. He says, Timothy, teach that God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command those in your church to be generous and lay up treasures in heaven so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Sometimes we think that if we do God's will, we're taking a vow of poverty and we will never enjoy another good thing in our life. When we first started out in ministry, my wife and I, along with another couple, were planting a church in northeastern Quebec. It was mission work. And in Quebec, you may know that they have two income tax returns, a federal one and a provincial one. On the provincial one, they had this question, have you taken a vow of poverty? And every year I filled out that provincial form, I wanted to answer, no, it's just worked out that way. (laughs) It's not true that God calls us to give up every good thing. Stewardship's not about what we have or how much we have. It's about what we do with what we have. Some are called to live frugally. Some are challenged to live with abundance. That's all up to God. Remember, a steward has one job, to be faithful. 
And I hope you understand how freeing that is and how much joy that brings. If we are faithful, we can fully enjoy what God entrusts to us. In Ecclesiastes we read, a man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? See, living as stewards does not mean automatically that we give up the good life. It means that we give up control and we stop pretending to be owners. A stewardship mindset does not mean that we don't enjoy good things. In fact, I believe it means that we enjoy things even more because they come as gifts from the hand of our Heavenly Father. So Northanger, here's the question. What is there that we have not yet given up control of? Is there an area in our lives where we're having a hard time trusting God? And I don't mean just money. It could be in any area of our life. Maybe we worry about things. Maybe we worry about not having things to worry about. Is there some area where we have not yet given up control? Where if we were honest before the Lord today, we'd say, Lord, I am hanging on to that. I don't quite trust you in that. Last week, Matthew asked us to take and put our hands in front of us and so we can actually start with a closed fist. And I would ask in a moment that when we're praying, we could take that fist and we could raise it to God and then just as a symbol, say, I release that to you and I let go. There are people who will pray with us here at the front. There's the prayer room is available. So I ask you to stand with me. We close in prayer. Let's be honest before the Lord. I mean, he knows our heart anyway. It's a matter of if we're going to be honest about it. What are you afraid of? Where, where is fear controlling? Where has fear taken over? So we bow our heads in prayer. Raise that open hand to the Lord and confess it to him. Father, we thank you that you are a generous God. You are so generous to us. We give you thanks for salvation that is ours through Jesus Christ. We give you thanks for the daily bread that you give us in answer to our prayers. We give you thanks for our family, for our friends, for our church family. And if there's been ways, Lord, that we have not been faithful, we ask forgiveness, we repent. Give us courage in the days that lie ahead to not act out of fear, but to trust you. Help us to lay hold of the promises of your word. Oh, how sweet 
trust in Jesus. Just to take him at his word. To rest upon his promises. So Lord, set us free to live joyfully, trusting in you. Teach us to love as you have loved us. Remind us that all of this is yours, Lord. And I give it all back to you. Make us more like you in every way and help us trust that all I have from you right now is all I need right now. I love you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.